So I'd like to thank the uh, European Fashion Heritage Association for inviting me here today. Uh, I started working on Paris fashion because it's very nice to come to Paris and have a tax-deductible trip to Paris doing research. Um, and I always used, well, always used to be shocked at all of those people who would do their dissertation research and future research in obscure places that weren't at all attractive. <laughs> so uh, I'm also going to talk a little bit not only about my book, which has now gone into a new edition, the third edition, but also at the end I'll talk a little bit about next fall's exhibition that I'm working on, which is Paris Capital of Fashion. That also being a theme that I address in Paris Fashion. When I did Paris Fashion, published it for the first time in 1988, there were a lot of books about Paris, but most of them had a kind of genealogy of great designers, almost a kind of hagiography of great designers. So Worth begat Poiret, begat Chanel, begat Dior. And any discussion of why Paris was the capital focused on either the genius of these designers or their dictatorship or just some je ne sais quoi in the air of Paris that made it an unusually um, fertile place for fashion creativity. Sometimes you'd also have references to the, the manual dexterity of all of the fashion workers, the petit main. Um, but on the whole, there was never any real discussion of what might make a city a particular center of fashion. So that was one of the things that intrigued me. And in my book, I turned away from looking just at designers as such and after a lot of research came to the conclusion that it was really about the depth and sophistication of Paris fashion culture. And that this involved not only great designers, but everyone from milliners to artists, from dandies to actresses, all kinds of knowledgeable performers and spectators who made fashion, not only as an object, but as a concept and as a value in society. So in a way, it was like the, the guide in Offenbach's La Vie Parisienne, who said, it is my business to take foreigners around the city and show them all the beauties of the capital. And I felt like that when I was working on the book, that I was going along showing readers or future readers all of the places, the sites in Paris where these performers and spectators made fashion. So it was an early example, an early crude example of the works on geography of fashion, which have become, I think, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of, of fashion studies. Nowadays, of course, there are many fashion cities. In addition to the big four, uh, London, Milan, New York, and Paris, there are literally hundreds of other cities around the world that have more or less official fashion weeks, <coughs> ranging from Moscow to Mumbai, from Sao Paulo to Shanghai, absolutely everywhere. So in a way, the question seems to become, well, maybe Paris was once the capital of fashion, but what would it mean to be a capital of fashion nowadays in a completely globalized world? And certainly it means something different because you're not talking about 
necessarily French creators and French style, let alone clothing being produced by French people in Paris. You're talking about a situation where a designer might be English and a photographer might be Japanese and the model might be African and the stylist might be South American and they're creating it for a company which is owned in Spain. And what? how do we call this Paris fashion? Um, is it only because it's shown in Paris or is it because the big corporations, the high-end luxury corporations are based in Paris? So it's the whole framework within which to look at it has been changed. Moreover, um, in Fashion's World Cities, David Gilbert wrote, the concept of Paris fashion must represent one of the most powerful and long-running reifications of place in modern history. But even a cursory examination of the way the term has been used draws attention to the complexity of the notion of the fashion capital and to the complexity of the fashion process itself. So um, you look here, for example, at this Louis Vuitton ensemble, which obviously looks back at sort of the golden age of sort of early Paris as the capital of fashion. And it turns out that this is going to be one of the pieces that I'll include in my exhibition, Paris Capital of Fashion, and one of the sections will in fact try and tie together the sort of heritage of court spectacle and then the spectacle of modern mediatized haute couture and high fashion so that images like this will shoot around the world. Now, already in the 17th century, fashion leadership in Europe had moved from Spain to France. And as Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Louis XIV's Minister of Finance, famously or allegedly put it, fashion is to France what the gold mines of Peru are to Spain. Uh, and under Louis XIV, of course, the French state instituted political and economic policies designed to maximize the benefits to be obtained from French fashion and luxury trades, triggering complaints, such as the one Heidi indicated, uh, the English, for example, worried that the French rule over fashion amounted to a universal monarchy for clothes, which they saw as a wolf in sheep's clothing moving towards a universal monarchy, period, full stop. <laughs> Foreigners not only followed French fashion, they also increasingly adopted the French word for fashion, mode, which was defined in 1690 uh, as said particularly of the manner of dressing following the customs of the court. The French are constantly changing fashion. Foreigners follow the French fashion. Except they said, except the Spanish who never change fashion. <laughs> so um, the court set the style for aristocrats throughout Europe. Uh, and though by the 18th century, the Baroque magnificence and somewhat stereotyped etiquette of court dress had begun giving way to the fashion parade of purely Parisian aristocratic styles. So as I said, the, the French fashion industry, the Paris fashion industry, was already well established by the late 17th century. There were numerous skilled and specialized workers textile producers, dressmakers, milliners, tailors, fan makers, shoemakers, established merchants and shopkeepers, 
1685, Charles Le Maire's History of Paris boasted that, quote, Parisians dress better than anyone else in Europe. Prints and periodicals promoted the latest Paris fashions beyond the borders of France, as did the famous fashion dolls, which were sent out every month to Europe, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, and the New World. And by the 18th century, foreigners were amazed and sometimes a bit horrified by the Parisian mania for new fashions. In her book, Queen of Fashion, Carolyn Weber documents how Marie Antoinette became notorious for making fashion her principal occupation and for, quote, introducing a new fashion almost every day. Obviously an exaggeration, but still she popularized many of the, of the latest Paris fashions, from the poof hairstyle to the chemise dress, attracting imitators and criticisms. Famously, she sent a portrait of herself to her mother, uh, Maria Theresa of Austria, who wrote back, this is not the portrait of the Queen of France. There is some mistake. It is the portrait of an actress. Uh, and again, to be the most a la mode woman alive seemed to Marie Antoinette the most desirable thing possible, re recalled the Comtesse de Boine. And many agreed that this was reprehensible. Although, of course, subsequently, this helped go into making an image of Marie Antoinette as the queen of fashion, which continues to reverberate among fashion designers and fashionistas today. Of course, the most important of her purveyors was Rose Bertin, um, who was referred to as her milliner of fashion, and whose shop, the Grand Mogul, was located on the Rue de Faubourg Saint-Honoré, not far from here. The French Revolution, of course, saw the rise of a new vestimentary regime characterized by an officially proclaimed liberty of dress. And the politics of appearances influenced clothing styles from the time Louis XVI convened the Estates General in 1789 through the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815. So the plain dark suit of the revolutionary bourgeoisie the long trousers of the sans-culotte, and of course, the much caricatured clothing of the incroyable and merveilleuse all played a role in the panorama of revolutionary fashion. On a more practical level, of course, Paris's fashion dominance dwindled as the consumers of high fashion increasingly fled the country, as did many of the creators of fashion. So people like Rose Bertin, left the country, and Napoleon had to struggle frantically to rebuild a fashion and luxury industry. Despite England's attempts to isolate revolutionary France, Paris fashions trickled out and were copied, not always exactly. I collected these two prints many years ago. Uh, one, the original print appeared in the Journal des Dames et des Modes in the year nine of the revolutionary calendar and then appeared a few months later in London in the uh, ladies' magazine. The second one is conspicuously more modest. You can see how her nipples are no longer showing. And by extension, uh, they've put in car bare-breasted caryatids on the table. <laughs> I remember fondly when I bought this from a French dealer who drew my attention to the difference and sneered, la pudeur anglaise. <laughs> 
over the course of the 19th century, capitalism radically transformed the production and consumption of fashionable dress. And although Paris continued to dominate women's fashion, significantly by the 1830s and 40s, uh, domination in men's fashion had shifted to London. And there are many disgruntled remarks in French tailors' magazines about how everyone is copying the English. And they must not forget that Paris is and always will be the capital of fashion. One thing I found tracing that term, I'll go back to that later, is that whenever there was a problem with foreign competition, this was waved as a banner that Paris was and always would be the capital of fashion. When things were going well, people didn't talk about that so much. <laughs> the emergence of modern fashion, la mode, was closely related to the rise of urban modernity. And Baudelaire's essay on the painter of modern life has been especially influential in its emphasis on fashion as a critical aspect of modernity. At the same time, Parisian high society drew on the heritage of the court and the aristocratic salons of the old regime, welcoming ritualized fashion display and emphasizing the importance of taste and style. Nowhere did writers and artists devote so much serious attention to fashion as in Paris. And no wonder, since throughout the city, everyone was engaged in the symbolic production of fashion as a creative language. You see this constantly in novels and literature. And this is so different than the situation in America where a writer like Thoreau would warn people to beware of any occasion that requires new clothes. So that new clothes, it was a bad thing to think about fashion. So many artists, of course, uh, found that contemporary fashion played a very important role in their conception of shifting from academic to modern painting. But it's been proven a long time ago that the humble fashion plate played an important role in the creation of modern art and Impressionism. So the Collin sisters have a very a small yet genuine role to play in the history of modern art. Paris was also strongly identified with the image of the Parisienne, which encompassed not only the great lady and the courtesan, but also the fashion professional. So as Emmeline Raymond put it in her 1867 text, La Mode et la Parisienne, quote, it is difficult to think of fashion without also thinking of la Parisienne. In Paris, half the fashion population lives off Sorry, half the female population lives off fashion, while the other half lives for fashion. And then there is a very extensive uh, literature which includes the expected contemptuous remarks about provincials and foreigners, and then also the sort of backhanded compliments that even foreigners can appreciate that Paris fashion is better. And if they spend enough time here, even they can learn how to become, in a sense, foreign Parisians. Which reminds me, of course, of a very early research trip to Paris where I was treated to a long harangue about how America was a completely barbaric country. And finally I said, this may be true, but do you think this is really very polite to say to an American? And he brushed that off by saying, oh, your true country is France. 
Now, as I said, Americans tended to be very ambivalent about fashion, uh, in part because their cultural identity, natural, democratic, was formed in reaction to the artificial and aristocratic Europe. So just as the French had their myths about fashion and national identity, so did Americans. Dress reformers complained bitterly that American women wore fashions that came, quote, from licentious Paris and infidel France, where woman stoops from her high position of virtue and morality to mingle with the vicious and impure, to pander to the low passions and base desires of their compeers in the arts of hell. They're just getting geared up. Let American and Christian women blush at the character of their Parisian models of fashion. And then going on, why should the daughters of Puritan ancestors imitate the clothing of the fashionable courtesan class in the wicked city of Paris? Instead, all lovers of liberty should join to free American women from the domination of foreign fashion. Now here we see a lovely Collin sisters fashion plate um, from a French fashion magazine which will show us how American women obstinately refused to be liberated from Paris fashion. This appeared in Petit Courrier des Dames on the 4th of July, 1857, and this appeared in Godey's Ladies' Book uh, exactly one year later. So that was rather a, rather a long period of time. It came out in July, 1858. So whereas the English were copying within a matter of two months, in this case, the copy of the fashion image came a year later. But it, they preferred to say that French fashions were made adaptable and wearable by American women. By the middle of the 19th century, ready-made fashion was widely available, first uh, in the Magasin de Novote and then in the de department stores, the real dream worlds of consumption which emerged first in Paris and were then imported into other large cities. The production of women's high fashion was also transformed by the rise of the grande couture, later known as the haute couture, uh, where small dressmakers were increasingly marginalized, but a few couturiers, such as the Englishman Charles Frederick Worth, flourished by restructuring the couture from a small-scale craft into big business and high art. So really the appearance of department stores and ready-to-wear is just the flip side of the appearance of grande couture instead of petite couture. So just as the couture was transformed and became the elite segment of feminine fashion, this also became central to the image of Paris as a woman's paradise. So one of the second aspects of my exhibition on Paris capital of fashion will be precisely how this creation of the haute couture became central to an image avidly promoted in foreign countries as well as in Paris, that this is the, the center of Paris and this is why you're coming and coming to particular neighborhoods in Paris. So that for all the Thoreaus of the world, there were other Americans who would say things like, when good Americans die, they go to Paris. And of course, there were certain neighborhoods in Paris, the kingdom of fashion, which were particularly fashionable. So 
the French, the strength of the French fashion industry then, per se, I think doesn't entirely explain why Paris became and long remains the international capital of style. Um, as I said, I think at least as important is the, the development of a sophisticated Parisian fashion culture and a discourse and set of representations about Paris fashion, which had tremendous influence around the world. Because for all of the complaints about the domination of Paris in the American press, you also find an equally slavish and devoted longing to become a cosmopolitan American in Paris, a sort of would-be Parisienne. And nobody praised and bought Parisian couture as avidly as foreigners. So Worth famously was supposed to have said that he liked American clients because they had the faces, the figures, and the francs. <laughs> Just as Madeleine Viennet later said that she preferred her Latin Americans, who at that point were very wealthy, but who also had, what did she say, the bodies of carnivores. They knew how to move. So for milliners, you also have the painters. You have everyone who's moving through the geography of fashion in Paris to various scenes of fashionable display, such as the opera. And here we have Mary Cassatt's painting of her sister at the opera. And then even within private venues, so private homes, where only the elite would get to see what others of the elite were wearing. And of course, with uh, all of the famous personalities who made fashion so central to their vision of the world, and through that influenced writers like Proust, who learned a lot from the Comtesse Brefou and the uh, Count de Montesquieu. So the whole language of clothes had all of these creators who were contributing to the vocabulary. Now, moving into the 20th century, the rise of avant-garde styles didn't come because of the First World War. And it didn't become because of the feminist and dress reform movement. It emerged out of the heart of the highest branch of French fashion, the most advanced branch of French fashion. So this is something that a lot of American fashion historians have a hard time dealing with. They've surely it must have really come out of dress reform. Well, Poiret was certainly aware of experiments in dress reform. Nevertheless, its success emerged coming out of the couture. And then in the 1920s, the couture continued to be very strong, here with an interesting phenomenon of the 20s and 30s between Poiret's harem and Dior's new look being the era of the golden age of the female designer. So that's not just Chanel and Schiaparelli and Lanvin shown here, but Augusta Bernard, Louise Boulanger, and a host of others. Interestingly, you, you start to find here a tension between the modernity that was always associated with America and American cities being juxtaposed with Paris. So there are some images in French magazines which will show New York looking really crazy modern with skyscrapers and jazz performers, and then Paris looking old-fashioned. But then partly because of prohibition, so many Americans were coming over to Paris. You had a kind of importation of jazz culture into Paris, and Paris, again, keeping control 
of the new simplified modern woman fashion. In fact, I think one reason that women really began to control the fashion world was because people felt who better than a woman designer to dress the modern woman. After the war, uh, Paris fashion emerged again from the flames, from all of the des destruction and occupation, but not simply because of the genius of designers like Dior. Studies of creativity have shown that you have to have uh, a core of influencers and then a pool of followers who are really eager to invest in something new, whether it's a new style of art or a new style of dress. And the American fashion journalists and fashionistas were ecstatically, just desperately waiting for something new and exciting to come out of Paris after the war. And they leaped on the new look with wild enthusiasm. And even the controversy about it made it more popular. So I think there again you have this tension, people waiting and wanting, expecting it to come from Paris. The French worried that the Americans and the British had been making their own fashion. Would they go back to Paris? Meanwhile, in England and America, people were like, well, that was good enough for the interim, but when are we going to get something from Paris again? Paris fashion in the 21st century, of course, has uh, existed in an era of globalization, an era of increased technology, where knockoffs appear constantly, uh, produced elsewhere. But again, the issue becomes fashion is not simply a question of the material production of fashionable clothing, but also of its symbolic production. And even today, it seems that there is magic associated with the name of Paris, which you can see with so many designers wanting to show in Paris, and the copycat companies wanting to copy things that are shown in Paris. Who cares where the designer was born or raised or trained? The point is if he or she is showing in Paris, it automatically gets the imprimatur of Paris fashion. So after I finished revising Paris fashion, I started working on another book that would go with the exhibition, um, Paris Capital of Fashion. And I came across, of course, tons of quotations like these in recent, very recent years, like 2017. Paris, once again, the world's undisputed fashion capital. That from the headline of an internationally syndicated newspaper article. And then Global Language Monitor, which tracks uh, the media impact of events. They had a different take on the same fashion week. They said, in another close battle between New York and Paris, New York took four of the five categories to take the top global fashion capital's crown for 2017. Yet according to the New Yorker, quote, there was angst about Paris at New York Fashion Week because several of New York City's most prominent designers had defected to Paris, quote, the most glamorous and competitive of the world's fashion capitals. So journalists today clearly expect that people will be familiar with this term fashion capital. But I wondered where and when this expression had begun. So searching through the phrase capital de la mode and related phrases like city of fashion, 
uh, initially in the Gallica database of the Bibliothèque Nationale, and then through other databases, uh, we found dozens of references to, ultimately hundreds of references to Paris as a capital of fashion. The earliest, and there were only a few of them, dated to the 18th century. When we hear that, for example, a capital is formed in the same way as a city in a province, with this difference, that the biggest landowners live in the capital, the sovereign government makes its residence there, and from there dispenses the revenues of the state, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, that a capital is the center of fashions that all the provinces take as models, end quote. Now, so fashion has obviously played an evolving role in the French historical narrative over the past 350 years. I'm going to go back for one sec. Um, from the age of Louis XIV to the spectacle of the haute couture. But by tracing across time this idea of a fashion capital, I unexpectedly discovered a new way to explore the history of Paris fashion and its evolving significance in the cultural imagination. As the French historian Daniel Roche put it, what makes the capital the capital is the concentration of power. And power can be defined politically, economically, and culturally. Um, in addition to its reputation as the capital of fashion, Paris also has been described as the capital of revolution, the capital of modernity, the capital of art, and the capital of pleasure, to use only a few other phrases. And as another French historian, uh, Patrice Igonet, puts it, Paris is a city of myths, and myths give birth to other myths. So a myth, in this sense, is not simply fantasy or propaganda. It bears some relation to material reality. After all, Paris really has played a very important, perhaps unique role in the history of fashion, just as it has in the history of world revolution. On the other hand, a myth is not factually true in the same way as a statement like, Paris is the capital of France. So myths entail the interpretation of events, often after the fact, and changing, whether that event is the rise of the haute couture or the fall of the Bastille. So just a couple of images. You know, the first section, as I said, in the exhibition is going to look at uh, from royal splendor to the spect spectacle of the haute couture. And looking back at the texts, how initially France is gradually erased and Paris is put in its place. So early 17th century accounts say, nothing pleases more than the fashions born in France, and everything made there has a certain air that foreigners cannot give their works. No mention of Paris. Um, and then later on, by the middle of the 19th century, you find constant references to Paris as being the capital of fashion. So in 1857, the popular encyclopedia said, Paris has been the capital of fashion for three centuries. Since the time of Louis XIV, Parisian adornments had as tributaries all the courts of Europe, end quote. So we're seeing here a kind of a foundation myth in the process of creation. And you're also seeing here, of course, Empress Eugenie imitating Marie Antoinette. So the whole splendor of Versailles 
pick is picked up by Hollywood. This is Adrian's costume, which we'll show in the exhibition. Um, and Paris and Versailles become, as it were, the two-headed capital of uh, Paris fashion in the early years. Then this construction of a narrative about Paris develops further in the 20th century. So here you see an Elsa Schiaparelli cape with again the Apollo motif, so hearkening back again to Louis XIV. We're this is the heritage of really great fashion. How could you have, as Schiaparelli said, world-class fashion anywhere outside of Paris? And then again more in the French state in the 1980s, launching the first of many campaigns to promote its cultural patrimony, arguing that this included not just treasures of architecture and painting, but fragile and even intangible aspects of the heritage of France. And French Vogue specifically cited the haute couture as our patrimony. So uh, here we have you know, images of the incroyable. Here we have Galliano creating the incroyable ensemble. Here we have Galliano again creating this fantastic 2001 image of Marie Antoinette, uh, one side of her playing the shepherdess, the other side on the way to the guillotine. Uh, and But as Vogue put it, looking back, if this issue in the 18, 1980s opens with the splendors of Versailles, it is because haute couture is at home there. The descendants of the artists and artisans who created with their imagination in their hands the most beautiful palace in the world are living and active in the ateliers of the haute couture. The collections this spring, in the 1980s, uh, are, a are a Versailles of magnificent fabrics, of princely embroideries, created not for a single king, but for thousands of queens, end quote. <laughs> so the myth then continues to evolve and develop and to be eagerly eaten up and further exaggerated in other countries where the ideal to be aspire to Paris fashion is the ultimate kind of fantasy. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for this very inspiring talk as a keynote. And we have learned how, m how important it is to look at tradition, to look at myth, and also to look at the uh, evolution of the various words, as you said, capital of fashion, since when do we talk about this? Maybe we should, I, I, I'd like to add also that the word fashion was not only concerning dress, but it was all f coming from Paris. You had to have a carriage coming from here. You had to eat like a Paris.